Tonight we come to another section of teaching on the end times, but we're looking at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 13, follow with me. As I just read the short section that it is, verses 24 through 27. These are the words of our Lord. Mark 13, verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then... They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels, and he will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Our hope, O Lord, is that you would remind us of the great confidence and the guarantee that we have of your soon return. That you, the King of glory, will return. The King over all kings, the Lord over all lords. You are the, the creator, the designer, the maker. And you will return with great power and with great glory. Show us your word. Show us your truth. And may we live in light of this hope. In Jesus' name, amen. The passage that we have before us tonight is the hope of every Christian. This is the sure, this is the certain, this is the guarantee that God has given to every one of us in the Word of God. And, and the Bible calls it the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the second coming. It is the return of the Lord. You see it there at the end of verse 26. It is described as a coming with great power and with great glory. I wonder if many of our discouragements, many of our frustrations, many of our anxieties would be healed if we remembered afresh the great coming and the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I do believe that if we rightly understood the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think there are four direct applications that it would have in our lives. Number one, I believe that if we understood this, it would produce piety in us. Piety, I don't mean a holier-than-thou piety. I mean, I mean a, in the truest sense of the word, a, a genuine holiness, a genuine godliness. A humility of heart that loves the Lord and that wants to live every minute and every hour and every day for the glory of our Savior. If we understood the glory of the second coming, not only would it produce piety, it would give urgency. If what I'm going to preach tonight from the text is true. And what the Bible presents is true. This is an awful reality in the truest sense of the word. It is absolutely terrifying. 
It is a knee-shaking, trembling reality that you and I would realize and we would go to the lost and all but grab them and shake them and say, you need to turn to Christ. It would produce piety and urgency. Third, expectancy. Oh, the... Can, can you think of the hope and the anticipation and the, and the watchfulness that maybe today he'll return? Maybe today he will come back. Oh, the, the hope of looking for the soon return. I think fourth, if we understood the glory of the second coming, it would produce sobriety. Maybe a synonym of that would be solemnity. It would produce a a serious mindedness. We wouldn't be as trivial. I'm not saying jokes are bad. Don't don't hear what I'm saying here. But just kind of a a worldly joking sort of a uh, shooting the breeze. Just kind of living life on the edge. If we understood the second coming, it would rid us of that and give us a serious mindedness about the things of eternity. I'm reminded of what the psalmist said in Psalm 96 when he said this, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. And all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. Because the Lord is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. And he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Truly the psalmist understood that the Lord is returning. He is returning. And can I just remind all of us here tonight, in this place, we need to be reminded with clear truth from the Bible that Jesus is coming back. That He will return. That He will come again. The Gospel of Mark is all about the suffering servant, amazingly enough. That's why Mark loves to quote from the book of Isaiah more often than any other Old Testament book. But Jesus is the servant, Mark teaches us, who came to give his life as a ransom for many. And the whole book of Mark emphasizes discipleship. The the book of Mark is like a fast-paced, quick, quick, rapid-fire account of the life of Christ, and it is emphasizing your full discipleship. Jesus went to the cross for you, and he wants you to carry your cross for him. Jesus calls you and me to full submission, to complete allegiance. And here's the the crowning gem of all of it. The crowning gem is that Jesus, your crucified and resurrected Savior, has already won the victory. He's already won the victory and he will return as king. And when he returns, he will defeat and he will destroy his enemies. And when he does that, he will also deliver his people. Mark chapter 13 is one of the final discourses that we have in the life of our Lord. It's really a sermon on the end. 
the beginning of the tribulation, verses 1 to 13. The midpoint of the tribulation, verses 14 to 23, the abomination of desolation that we looked at. And then tonight we look at the end of the tribulation, that is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next week is the application. So what does it mean for you? But tonight we come to the second coming of the Lord. I want it to be said that what we are looking at tonight is a miracle of all miracles. Let's just kind of begin by laying the, the foundation with the statement that you and I believe that our God does miracles. You and I believe that our God can do miracles because, because He's the God who rules over nature and the laws of nature. And what we are looking at tonight is a cosmic event, meaning a heavenly event of global proportions that will include everyone alive on planet Earth. None will be accepted. That's an amazing thing to think about. Now, the second coming is all over the Word of God, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Zechariah chapter 14 gives the details on the location of where the Lord will return. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Matthew 24 and 25 gives a much fuller account of the details of the return of our Lord and how we ought to expect His return and what He will do when He returns to earth. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3 to the end of the chapter, we read about the victory of the Lord, that He will completely crush His enemies when He returns in great power and glory. Revelation 19 just might be the most severe event in all of the book of Revelation as it accounts the coming of the Lord who comes to judge righteously and wage war with all of his enemies. But 2 Timothy 4.1 says that Jesus will return and the implication of that is to preach the word. In Jude, verses 14 and 15, we read about the purpose of the second coming. That he will judge all the ungodly of all their unrighteous deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. In Revelation 1, verse 7, we read about the visibility of the coming. I think Gizzy read earlier, every eye on planet earth will see the Lord descending. I'm not sure how that works. With the globe and how all that, I have my thoughts. But but the visibility of the coming is amazing, widespread, global, exhaustive. Acts one eleven tells us the manner. He will come in the clouds, just like the angel said, just like you saw him ascend to heaven. He will come in the same way. Second Peter chapter 3 tells us about the holiness that we ought to have. What sort of people ought you to be in holiness and godly conduct as we are awaiting the coming of the Lord and when mockers are saying, where is the coming of the Lord, like he said. But tonight, in light of all of that, is sort of some background to complement our scripture and give much more detail. Let's look at Mark 13. And let's look at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ together. I pray that tonight will both sober you and encourage you. 
I pray that tonight's account will instill the fear of the Lord in you and a gratitude for what the Lord has done for you. May we come to know and love and worship our Savior even a little bit more, a little bit deeper in light of what we learn tonight. First, in your outline, let's look at the time. The time. Now, nobody, nobody knows the day which the Lord is coming. Matthew 24, 42. So, nobody's here setting dates. Nobody knows the day or the hour. Jesus makes that clear. But this event that we're talking about is the real climax of all human history. It is the climax of all human history. But we know, even though we don't know the hour, we know that he is near, Philippians 4 tells us. And we know that the judge is right at the door, James 5 tells us. Look at our text in Mark 13, verse 24. Let me just bring out a couple of key words. Number one, in those days, notice this temporal adverb, after that tribulation. There is a particular time that we read about here. It is in those days after that tribulation that has just been described in verses 14 to 23. And then in verse 26, we read, then they will see the Son of Man coming. In 27, then he will send forth his angels. According to Daniel chapter 7, Verses 8 to 14, there is a great tribulation with the Antichrist who is making great boasts. And then the Son of Man returns to take his glorious throne. According to Zechariah chapter 14, there is a great war in Israel with great suffering. And then the Lord descends and his feet stand on the Mount of Olives. According to Revelation 6 to 18 and the chronology there, there is a great tribulation and then the second coming of the Lord. The time of the coming is after the future seven year tribulation. It's like on Monday of this week. I gathered with a group of maybe 50 or 60 people on Monday for a morning of prayer and scripture reading and I told the children that morning that afterward, about lunchtime, I would come home. And when I came home around lunchtime, shortly thereafter, my family was on the couch, ready for my arrival, doing some reading. I told them that I would return after my prayer time with other believers, but I would be home around lunchtime. They didn't know exactly when, but they were waiting and they were ready for my arrival. We can discuss many signs and we can discuss many related events surrounding the second coming with the tribulation and the future kingdom and all these things. And we can talk about things related to the coming, but we can't let that cloud the reality that our Savior is coming. We can talk about eschatology, we can talk about differences here or there, but we can't forget that the Lord is Returning. He is returning. And he will return in those days after the tribulation. And after that tribulation, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. That's the time. It's after the tribulation. Let's look, number two, at the terror. Well, what about the terror 
What's going to happen when he returns? Church family, I feel like, like I'm on the ocean with a little bucket of water and or a little bucket. And I'm trying to scoop out so much of what's there to preach it to you. It's like there's an ocean of truth. And what can I do with a little bucket that I have? Because in verses 24 to 25, virtually the entire section here is consisting of allusions to the Old Testament, which as a little footnote, our Savior knew his Bible really well. He is able to take scriptures, get this, in these two verses from Isaiah 13, Isaiah 35, Ezekiel 32, Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 7 and put it all together to describe his coming. I mean, what what a brilliant Savior who knows the Scripture so well, all signifying God's power. And all of those Scriptures are in the context of judgment when the Lord will return mightily, visibly, triumphantly, and, and... Angrily. Angrily. I came across a a commentary who said this, and I thought it was such a, a great line. He said, when the sign of Christ returns, the sign is Christ in his return. When he returns, it will defy all scientists and all pseudoscientists and all astronomers and all astrologers there will be no way to humanly explain what's going on you can only imagine how it's going to baffle people there's no way to misread the purpose of the coming of the lord well why can't they explain it here's why it's a miracle it's a miracle well who can explain genesis 1 Well, the word is clear. It's a miracle. Who can explain the miracles of Scripture? The sun standing still in Joshua 10. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's an unexplainable, unrepeatable, undeniable, supernatural act of God where he is altering the laws of nature to accomplish his perfect decrees. This is a miracle. And what will happen? Look at verse 24. In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. Notice the passive. Something happens to the sun and God is the one who's doing it. The sun will be darkened. Notice in verse 25, the stars will be falling from heaven. Can you imagine the consternation that will bring? And look at the end of verse 25. And the powers that are in the heavens, notice the passive, it will be shaken. God will shake the powers in the heavens like a little child shakes a little branch on a tree. God will do this. Would you keep your finger here, but go forward to Luke 21. Luke 21 adds a little bit more detail about this part of the coming of the Lord. Now, I kind of forgot about this until my study this week. And it's a good reminder for all of us. Look at Luke 21, verses 25 and 26. Luke says, There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars... 
verse 25. And on the earth there will be dismay among the nations. The Greek word for that means anguish, distress. Oh, there will be distress among all the nations and in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. The word perplexity means that people will visibly shake. There will be an unsettling. People will be so shaken. They will be so trembling at what is going on. Verse 26, men will be fainting from fear. Men will be fainting. The word faint is a Greek word that means to swoon. It means to just faint and fall over. It means to be overwhelmed with grief and terror, with fear. I mean, can you imagine? Men are going to be fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I mean, do you see that there in Luke 21? Talk about a terrifying event. Maybe you've been in an earthquake before. Maybe maybe one in this country, maybe one in a different country, and sort of the effect of feeling so small and powerless when the ground is shaking underneath you. Or a tornado. Or, or, or a great and violent thunderstorm. Or, or, or a hurricane. Or you've seen online these volcanoes that are erupting. And these mighty and these powerful events. But, but, but nothing is like this. Th- th- this, what we have read in Mark and in Luke, is a whole new level. Do you remember how when Jesus rose from the dead... An angel announced that Jesus had risen and people trembled. Do you remember how in John chapter 18, the soldiers fell down like dead men when Jesus just simply said, I am. Do you remember how Moses feared greatly when God gave the law on Mount Sinai and the mountain quaked? Do you remember how Moses feared There's a a sense of helplessness in the presence of Almighty God. When Jesus comes back again a second time, he will come with a perfect array, a, a perfect sparkle of all of his divine attributes, all working together in their fullness. Can you, can you imagine the divine power of God fully unleashed? And the divine wisdom of God fully unleashed. And the divine holiness of God fully unleashed. And the divine righteousness of God fully unleashed. And the divine omnipresence of God fully unleashed. To find and gather everyone around the world. What a God. What a God who's appearing shows the incomparable sparkle of His power and holiness and justice and glory and knowledge and goodness and righteousness and kingship. What an amazing God. This really is the terror of the second coming. You and I and the world today has never seen anything that even comes close to this. And that's why the Apostle Paul 
put it like this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says this in 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 5, that God will repay with affliction those who afflict you when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. He will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. In Jude, we read in Jude verse 14, the Lord will come with many thousands of his holy ones in order to execute judgment upon all. And he will convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. And of all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. One of the things I was listening to J.C. Ryle as I was driving yesterday around. And J.C. Ryle online, uh, someone who was reading one of his commentaries on this. He said, imagine all the times people ignored the gospel offer. They ignore the gospel offer. And when they see the Son of Man coming, they will cry out for help. But it'll be too late. The door will be shut. The day of grace will be over. Jesus will be the judge, not the Savior, on that day for the unbelievers. It is is the moment of too late. It is the moment of the missed opportunity. It is the moment of the wasted gospel opportunity. The terror of the second coming. Praise God that he has given his word so that you and I can know about it now. And even if there might be some in the room, young or old, young or old, that need to take advantage of the opportunity that is yours this very day, take that opportunity and come before the Lord humbly before it's too late. But we see the time, we see the terror in your outline. Third, now let's look at the triumph. Now the triumph, and this is the final couple of verses here. What a a great truth, what a wonderful passage to see the triumph of the coming. First, Notice with me that it is cosmic. It is a cosmic coming. Verse 26, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and He will send forth His angels and gather His elect. I mean, the sun and the moon and the stars and the powers and the heavens play a part in this coming. Isaiah chapter 34 gives a lot of detail about this in those opening verses. In Joel chapter 3, we read much more detail about the coming of the Lord and the powers of the heavens being shaken. This is a cosmic return of triumph. Second, it's global. It's global. What we read earlier in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, that every eye will see the Lord returning. Every eye, whatever king, whatever prime minister, whatever known entertainer, whatever musician, Hollywood actors, pastors, deacons, missionaries, church members, abortionists, 
proud college students, unbelieving high schoolers, whatever it could be, every eye alive in this world at that time will behold Christ. It's global. This is a global event. Third, it's also glorious. Because, look at the end of verse 26, he comes with great power and with great glory. And he comes in the clouds. Now, I don't think the clouds only means like the the, the fluffy things up there. Although Acts 1, I think, does say that just as he went up, he will come in the same way, just like he ascended. But I think it's so much more than that. Remember how God often revealed himself in his power and presence in a cloud on Mount Sinai and with his people in the wilderness. So it's far more than just, wow, look at the fluffy clouds up there. This is the full presence of God. The fullness of God in all of his deity and glory and beauty. The first coming was glorious. The second coming will dwarf it. Because the Lamb will not just come to be born in Bethlehem. He will come as a lion to devour and conquer. He will be the triumphant Lamb who will crush His enemies under His feet. Listen to this contrast between the first and second coming by A.W. Tozer. Tozer said the first time Jesus came, he came to slay sin in men. The second time he comes, he will slay men who are living in sin. According to verse 27 in your outline, look at this. We also see not only is it global, not only is it glorious, not only is it cosmic, it's a gathering. Oh, verse 27, look at the hope right here. That Jesus will send forth his angels, the angelic messengers. According to Matthew 16, verse 27, the second coming is also with angels. And he will gather his elect, that is the redeemed, the redeemed of Christ, from the four winds all across the world, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of the heaven. In Hebrew Jewish thought, that is every corner of the planet. And this event is like the gathering of the good fish into the good containers, Matthew 13. It's like the separation of the sheep and the goats, like Matthew 25. It's like the, the wedding feast which has been prepared and the virgins who are ready to enter are now cheerful at their arrival of the feast. When we think about the coming of Christ and the triumph and the power and the glory and the beauty of our Savior, we want to adore the person of our Christ. We want to adore and admire and revere the person of our Christ. But I think we also need to tremble at Christ the judge as well. Much more could be said on that. I need to leave that. Because I have a couple of applications that I need to take you to. In fact, I think you have it in your outline there. I think I gave it in a couple of stars there. But I want you to turn with me to these. I think they are so important. We can't just fill our minds with information. We need to be warned 
with the implications as well. Turn to Luke 13, because we all need to be reminded of the danger of delay. The danger of delay. I was walking today and calling out to the Lord, just burdened for the church in America that I think is asleep in large part. I think the church in America is asleep, not in love with Christ, not evangelizing like it should, not praying like it should, not hungering for the Lord like it should. I don't want to point fingers at the bride of Christ. I'm pointing about those who profess to be the bride of Christ. The danger of delay. Look at what our Savior says. Luke 13, verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter, but they will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside, and you knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you're from. Then you will begin to say, well, we ate and we drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. Don't delay. Is there anyone here who's delaying? Delay no longer. Come to the Savior. Turn the page to Luke 17. Luke 17. It's the context of another sermon that Jesus gave earlier in his ministry. Luke 17. Look at verse 26. Here's the danger of indifference. And just as it happened, Luke 17, 26, in the days of Noah, it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, and they are drinking, and they are marrying, and they are being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. We live in a day of indifference. Eating, drinking, building, planting, marrying. Guard, lest there be indifference in any one of us. In Acts chapter 24, the Apostle Paul is standing on trial before Felix. In Acts chapter 24, he is before Felix. And in verse 25, he is with Drusilla, his wife. And Paul is preaching the gospel and he's talking about righteousness and self-control. And in the sermon before the political ruler, he's talking about the judgment to come. And Felix became so scared, frightened. And he said, stop. When I have time, I'll call for you. I think we need to do this as well. We need to preach coming judgment. Maybe just one more text for us. James 5. James chapter 5. The brother of our Lord is writing this letter to early Jewish Christians and he says in James chapter 5, 
Verse 7, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Christian, let's be patient. Let's be strong. Let's wait for the Lord. Let's be like George Whitfield, who as he would often travel from city to city, he would say, I am daily waiting for the coming of the Son of God. I am daily waiting for the coming of the Son of God. May that be true for me and you as well. As we drive home, as you get ready in the morning, as you drive to meetings, as you do your work, as we do our family engagements, as we gather together as a family of believers, I am waiting for the coming of the Son of God. That day for us believers will be a day of hope, a day of triumph, a day of victory, and that day is sure to come. Amen?